Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. For this episode, we're delving back into the topic of automation and education. This is the third of three interviews that we've put out over the past few months with different experts who are all interested in the rise of artificial intelligence and other forms of automated decision making. Previously, we've had interviews with Chris Gilliard and Frank Pasquale, so do check those out if you haven't heard them already. But today, we're talking with Professor Mark Andreevich, a media studies professor from Monash University in Melbourne, and perhaps best known for his work around surveillance, information and digital media. Mark currently is a chief investigator in the large Australian Centre of Excellence around automated decision making, and he's currently working on a bunch of other areas from facial recognition through to tracking dark ads on the internet. But the main reason for talking to Mark today is his automated media book from 2019, one of the most interesting recent theoretical explorations around the emerging forms of automation associated with the rise of AI and other digital systems. So in this interview, we go through some of the main arguments that Mark develops in automated media, and we consider how these are beginning to play out in educational contexts and through the specific forms of automation that are beginning to creep into schools and universities. So first off, I asked Mark to outline some examples of pervasive automation that have caught his attention in other areas of everyday life. What forms of technology-based automation are we talking about here? Probably one of the main things I think about is automated information curation. We live in a world where the contrast between the digital moment and the and the kind of analog mass media moment is uh, the context is one of information overload versus information scarcity. So the difference between having a morning newspaper and an evening newscast, both of which are kind of manageable on your own, right? You, know, you can pick up the newspaper, you can probably go through it in half an hour, you can watch the newscast. Now what we live in is an environment of um, the kind of overwhelming information. You know, you, you know, you go on any of your social media feeds or uh, you take a look at any of the plethora of online newspapers or 24-hour cable news, and you've just got a deluge of information. Right? So you can go to YouTube and just sit there and have the videos scroll by you. You go to Netflix and there are thousands of movies to choose from. Whereas in the old days, what was on at nine o'clock on Saturday is what was on on the three channels. So that means that the shaping of the information environment is is being taken over by automated systems because it just can't happen at a human scale. And that leads to questions about the priorities that are baked into those curation systems. Who's managing those systems and what are the ends of those systems? What are the goals? And what we've ended up with is a kind of de facto default to commercial systems for doing our curation. And that has interesting implications for things like news because you know, once upon a time, we thought about a kind of distinction between commercial news on the one hand, public service news, independent news on the other, because they had uh, different economic models and could be delivered in distinct ways. Now what's happening is they're all kind of relying on um, commercial media platforms for their distribution. Uh, and that means that they end up being subjected to the priorities that are built into those systems. So when people talk about things like, you know, clickbait culture and, and so on, 
um, they're talking about strategies for cutting through the clutter on social media. And anybody who's putting their content there finds themselves having to compete on, on that level. So that's one place where I think about automated media. Probably the, the kind of overarching big picture or set of claims that I've been forwarding around uh, the notion of automated media is what I call a kind of cascading logic of automation. And I think this is applicable to a whole range of areas from policing to education to marketing. When you equip the world with interactive devices or interactive sensors that collect huge amounts of information, it's impossible to manage that information on a human scale, uh, which means that once you automate the information collection process, you end up having to automate the sense-making process. You know, how are you going to process all of that data? It's got to be processed automatically. How are you going to make decisions based on that data? Increasingly, the direction is towards uh, automating those decisions. And the, the, the kind of alarming thing there to me is that almost any process can be subjected to that. So, you know, pick something like university admissions. Um, and, you know, we have kind of historical processes for evaluating applications. Um, but w once you're able to collect streams of data that were hitherto unavailable, so behavior in the classroom on a minute-by-minute -minute basis um, that can give you profiles of, I don't know, curiosity levels or activity levels, you start to generate streams of information that are too copious for something like an admissions committee to deal with. Um, so that then leads you to going, all right, you know, can we make some type of decision based on these streams of data that are too big for us to manage? Well, we need some kind of automated system that's going to do that and maybe it'll correlate, you know, a stream of data that we get about day-to-day -day performance in the classroom and correlate that with future success in the university. But it's not something that humans can do. It's something that's got to be done at, a, at an automated scale. But if you do it at really large scale, holding it accountable becomes a big challenge. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, education is an information environment and information curation has always been something that education's involved in. And as you say, kind of making sense of the information flows coming out of education institutions is also a big deal. And most educators accept that education is an inexact science. You know, it's based on guesswork, hunches and predict. Yeah, so the more data, the merrier. So one of the interesting things I'm, what I want to talk about is, is where automated technologies and these logics are actually kind of hitting education and maybe perhaps have some value. So, I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is it, there's a lot that could be automated in education, but perhaps the most important question is what should be automated. And, and you seem to have reservations about judgment, for example, technologies which are used you know, to automate judgments. And you, and you write ADMs are not equipped to substitute for the task of judge, judgment. Can you expand on that in particular? Yes. I, well, I, I think judgment is a really tricky category when you try to drill down on it, um, because we often use judgment in what seems to me a kind of quite loose way to refer to decisions that are logically deducible from the available information. So, you know, something like a syllogism, I wouldn't really count as a judgment. You, you know, I don't know, all men are human, Socrates is a man, Socrates is human, right? Like, there's, there's no, you don't need to judge anything there. If you've got the decision criteria and you have the, the inputs, um, you kind of get an automatic outcome. And, uh, you know, that would be something that we might describe as an automated decision. So, um, I don't know, to be eligible for a particular program, you've got to get above a particular score on a particular test. Okay. You know, it's pretty easy to find out. Did you get that score? No. Okay. Then you're not in. So that, that to me, it's not an act of judgment. 
An act of judgment is that moment when the data and the logic don't give you necessarily a defined conclusion. I, you know, probably in colloquial terms, you know, whenever you've got a really difficult decision to make and somebody says, well, write down all the pros and all the cons, uh, the fantasy there is that somehow there, there is just one solution that the available evidence can point to. But judgment is always that moment when you've got to make a certain type of leap. You've, you've got to, you know, it, it's not a syllogistic outcome. It's not that the, uh, the data automatically gives you an answer. And that's a very tricky human thing to, to deal with. I, I mean, things like hiring are interesting in that regard, right? We know that when it comes to making uh, decisions such as, you know, deciding who to hire for a particular position, when a human's doing that, there's an irreducible subjective element. And folks who are in favor of automated decision-making will say, well, that element can be biased and can um, reproduce prejudices. Uh, and that's true. And they'll say, well, but machines can be programmed in ways to eliminate that. That's a little bit sketchier as a claim because uh, we know that it takes unbiased data to generate unbiased decisions, but it's very hard to find unbiased data. So I, I think you know, many of the important decisions uh, that we make in the social context really are matters of judgment. And we would like to imagine that they're not, uh, that somehow an automated data processor can make that decision. But I, I think you know, that moment of judgment is really uh, a kind of profoundly, I wouldn't say it's just subjective, it's, it's a social process, right? It's, it's, um, but, but I think it's very difficult to put your finger on, like how do you, how do you make that decision well, it's something that we as a society come up with, uh, you know, processes uh, for addressing it and some kind of accountability mechanisms. And there's an irreducible moment of uh, something that's, I, I, you know, I think social and reflective uh, and something that's very difficult to capture in a mechanical way. If, if, if I think about applying that to the education context, one of the things that really interests me about the tendency in automation is... Uh, the tendency towards what might be described as somehow kind of absolute individualism, right? Like this promise of customized education where each student is treated as an individual. And that has a certain appeal, right? You know, we, we think about, well, you know, what if, uh, I don't know, if you look historically, maybe there are certain advantages to having the private tutor who would individually tutor your child rather than your child having to compete for the attention of a teacher with 25 or 30 other students and only getting a very small piece of that attention. Um, so we, you know, on some level, there's there's an intuitive connection to that promise of customization. But of course, when you try to do that at a mass scale, you end up needing a tutor for every student, which has, um, you know, economic and practical ramifications. The automated promise is, oh, no, we can actually substitute an automated form of customization for that tutor. Um, so in, in a sense, it's that same appeal as the marketing, right? Like if we could, it would be much better to have individual level education. And I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, we might want to think about socializing kids and, you know, school isn't just, a, you know, it's not just about transfer of knowledge. It's also about building community. And so there are those other issues. But over and over again, we see this promise of um, we, we can't have a teacher for every student, but what we can have is an automated system for every student. But the form of judgment that takes place there is, I think, very different from the type of judgment that a tutor would have. 
And that really gets us to this distinction between kind of automated forms of decision and, you know, what we would think of as human judgment. And, you know, one could imagine, I think, some advantages. Some child is in a classroom and um, they already understand whatever the lesson is. Might be good to have them working on something that is new to them and that they are learning. And we know that students learn at different speeds and in different ways. Um, Wouldn't it be good to be able to have kind of customized uh, response? But I, I think, you know, the potential pitfall there is you do lose judgment when that happens. Um, and so, you'll, you know, you will get automated systems that are making decisions based on past patterns that are collected. It's not necessarily true that those will be at the same level attuned to the student in the same way that, that you know, human judgment might be. And I think there, there's some issues there. I, I do think that there is that broader issue around uh, if you think about education as, as a kind of transfer of skills, that's the model that I think is going to be privileged by these automated systems, which uh, uh, I, I kind of frame it drawing on the Canadian media theorist, Harold Innes. You know, what's the bias of the technology? <laughs> and the, the question there is really like, when you pick this system, you know, what type of education are you priv- privileging over some other type? Yeah, I mean, Audrey Waters has talked about the pedagogical bias of a lot of these systems defaults to kind of behaviorist modes of, as you say, kind of training rather mm. than kind of learning. But it's interesting to think about, you talked about the fantasy of automated judgment, and it's interesting to think about how actually the appeal of these automated media to some educators, to some students, to a lot of um, administrators, isn't just kind of the economic, um, you know, the money that can be saved by not having a, a human tutor for every student, but also the appeal of delegating some hard decisions and judgments that perhaps people want to kind of skirt around to a machine. I mean, you talk about the subsumption of subjectivity. So if I think about grading students, for example, it can be a little bit of an awkward, embarrassing thing to say, well, I've gone through this human process of reflection and I'm going to give you 68% as opposed to 70 So there's an appeal there of actually kind of delegating that hard, that hard call to a machine. And in fact, some students might be more comfortable with it. Some teachers might be more comfortable with it. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, that's a really interesting area when it comes to asking what the bias of automation might be, because we know that automated systems are much better at evaluating particular type of assessments than others. So I, I agree with that appeal. Probably anybody who's taught us had this um, you know, decision process for themselves. If I give a multiple choice test, it's going to be really easy to grade. If I give an essay test, it's going to be much more challenging to grade in some ways, time-consuming. Uh, you know, some might say well, the labor comes up front in one case and you know afterwards in, in the other. But as if we talk about something like assessment and automated grading of assessment, um, I, I think that's where those arguments about you know how how can you address questions of a different kind of bias, which might you know be the subjective bias of the instructor, and you know how do you justify? You know, when it comes right down to it, it's going to be very hard in some cases to explain to two students, you know, why one did much better than the other. Um, let, let me put it this way. It won't be hard to explain it, but it would be highly contestable. <laughs> uh, whereas if you've got an automated system, in a sense, you lose that dimension of contestability, right? You can just come back and say, well, you know, it wasn't me. <laughs> it exactly, was the machine. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do worry... Um, what it means in terms of how it would transform our assessments. There are certain things that are going to be relatively easy to capture. Uh, you know, what keywords did they use? E- even perhaps maybe some elements of structure. 
But when it comes to things like assessing uh, the quality and character of an argument, I just don't think we've got machines that are capable of doing that. So what happens when we end up making the decision of saying, well, you know, in the name of a certain kind of um, lack of contestability uh, that serves as, as a kind of version of fairness, we just won't have those kinds of assessments. I, th- I do think you're losing something. Yeah, and also, as you say, you start creating assessments that fit the machine, but also you begin to behave and write and kind of you're thinking ways that are passable and machine readable, and it kind of devalues everything. Um, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Another One of the really interesting points you make in the automated media book is this idea of the changing nature of the subject. And actually, you kind of say the ultimate logic of automated technology is the eradication of the figure of the subject altogether, you know, rendering the subject obsolete. Which is really interesting when you start thinking about the, the kind of tendency in education to think about post-human, you know, the, the post-human turn in education thinking has been really big. And, and you argue, actually, this invalidates the post-human notion that humans are able to merge with machines or the human subject um, is enhanced by the technology. I mean, given the interest in education around post-humanism, the idea of machines coming together, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by the eradication of the subject? Yeah, I I mean, to some extent, I I think it really connects with your question about judgment, because I think that there's an an element of judgment which kind of captures the the kind of untotalizability of the subject. And I, I'll, I'll say a little bit what I mean by that. <laughs> um, the, the, the best example that I can think of is a, a quote that I actually start the book with, and it's uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist and an engineer at Google now. And he was working on reconstructing a conversation bot that would mimic the conversation of his deceased father. And so what he's doing is collecting all of the materials about his father, everything his father's written, anything that he has in terms of recordings of his father, all of the data and information that he can collect about his father, and putting that into a system that would then be a bot that he could have a conversation with. And somebody asked him, well, would it be like talking to your actual father, do you think, this bot? And his answer was, this bot will be more like my father than my father was. (laughs) And to me, that's what I mean by eradication of the subject. And it's probably quite familiar to us, you know, when, when marketers say things like, we know what you want more than you know. What they're telling us is that with enough data, we can actually determine and predict you in ways that are inaccessible to you. In other words, we will know you better than you know yourself. Uh, and that's, that's the version of your father that's you know, like more like your father than you are. And so the kind of philosophical position that I come from is one in which the, the subject retains a kind of radical non-self-identity with itself. That's kind of what being a subject is. The moment at which everything about you is fully predictable, in a way you've stopped being a subject. You've become something automated, right? And that notion of we can know what you want before you know it, we know who you are more than you do, it's kind of telling you that you are totalizable. You can be understood. You may not know it, but with enough data, we'll know it and we'll know everything that you're going to do next We'll know what your desires are going to be. I mean, we, we, we see this tendency over and over again. You know, like there's some fantasy and, you know, you know if, if we can unpack your genome, uh, we can kind of predict all of these things that are going to befall you in terms of, you know, medical conditions and how you'll age and, you know, where, which hairs you'll lose. <laughs> you know, like um, there's a code. Uh, and if we can just get that code, we've got you. Uh, And kind of the position I take is that's when you lose the subject. The subject is that moment of undecidability. It's that moment where 
you may be non-identical with yourself. It's it's that moment where Kurzweil's father is going to be not like Kurzweil's father, mm. um, and and that's the moment also. I think the space of judgment, right? That that's the the moment where you, how your judgment is going to flow is not a hundred percent predictable from the inputs that came before. In a kind of clockwork universe, it would be right. And so, you know, subtending all of these ideas is, is this kind of clockwork universe version. Like if we know all of the particles and all of their trajectories, we know what's going to happen next. And it's really interesting kind of translating that to a classroom situation, because I guess learners or students are always in a position where they don't really know themselves, perhaps as well as the teacher does. But there was a, a, a kind of recommender system a few years ago called Newton. And one of their marketing pitches was, we have a million points of data. We can know any student better than any human tutor ever could which was a real disjuncture because the tutor prides themselves on knowing the student as a person. Well, they were saying, well, the machine knows the, the student far better than you do. Mm. So it's kind of eradication of the, the kind of tutor subject. Yes, that, that are, that's a really interesting point. I, I mean, the fantasy in the end of kind of automated, customized content delivery in education would be the eradication of the teacher, right? So mm. um, it's not possible to have a tutor give each student continuous individual attention. It is possible, presumably, for an automated system to do that. So the teacher kind of disappears in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the one thing that tech companies are really, really clear they're not trying to do. Mm. We're, not, we're not getting rid of the teacher, clearly, because the teachers are the main consumers. Now, you mentioned the cascading logic of automation earlier. I just wanted to come back to that. And, and this is the kind of logical progression, you argue, from automated data collection to automated data processing to automated action. Mm. And the fact that this automated action kind of takes place at the speed of preemption, which is um, a really interesting thing to think through in terms of. Can you talk us through this progression in terms of, say, one of the educated automated technologies that you, you've written about in the book? This cascading logic of automation. How how, how can we kind of what examples can we get, think of that in education? You know, you, you remember the scandal in the UK when um, folks were unable to take the exams, and so predictive scores were generated about them. Right, that would certainly be this kind of example of preemptive. You know, you don't have to take the test. We're going to know what you would have gotten on it, and of course, in the end, that was backed away from. But that that would be the the kind of model taken to the limit. Right, we've got enough data about you to know um, how it is that you're going to perform, and so we don't actually need to have you perform because we've we've got a data double of you that we've run through the models and it's and we know what it's going to do yeah, well that that a level uh, automation out was really really interesting for many different reasons i mean it was baked into the kind of the biases of you know independent schools performing higher therefore students from independent schools got more great mm. the uk prime minister at the time boris johnson ended up by blaming it all on a mutant algorithm as he <laughs> put it which was really really interesting but th this whole idea of preemption kind of goes against everything that we think about education. You know, education is, is meant to try and understand things, not to try and act and predict. And you mentioned actually there's an emphasis with all this automated technology about preemption and what you call operationalism. You know, these are systems that are always trying to act rather than trying to understand. But also this idea via Foucault of environmentality as well, so a mode of governance that's based around directly shaping our environments. Now, all these things are kind of at odds with what most educationists would understand education as being. I mean, if we take those logics of preemption, operationalism, environmentality to their extremes, I mean, what form of education is imaginable under these altered conditions? I mean, how do you see these logics ultimately playing out? What's really interesting to me about this, what I mean by environmental control, is that it moves from 
what you might call ideological conditioning to external forms of basically nudging. So if you can do things, and you know, in here I imagine something like a highly malleable education environment, right? Imagine something like you know, the classroom in the metaverse. One of the interesting things about the metaverse is the environment itself can be modulated on an individual basis. So you can have 20 classroom kids in the same classroom. They can interact with each other in a kind of shared classroom space, but you could also customize that space for each of those students. That's how the digital environment could work, right? So you can imagine something like you sort students by learning styles, and each lesson would be completely different for different students based on their different learning styles. Um, but what that means is that the content that they receive and the environment in which they receive it would be individually tailored to them. And, and again, that, it's, it's interesting to me how much that has a kind of, uh, often has an intuitive marketing appeal, right? And if you say that to a parent, you know, their response might be like, well, that's, that's great. I know what it's like to have a, you know, my kid sit there and they don't need to know what's being taught or maybe what's being taught is above their level or below their level. But what I'm interested in with this kind of question of environmentality is how it is that you get people to do what you want them to do without asking them to internalize your request. You know, the classic example from Nudge Economics is if you want people to eat healthier, you can try to instill in them a kind of self-discipline of uh, healthy eating, you know, eat kale and don't eat junk food. And uh, But their solution is just make it harder to get the unhealthy food. You know, in the cafeteria, put it higher up or more remote or I don't know, make it embarrassing in some way if you've got to get it. And you're not conditioning them to think differently. You're conditioning them to act differently. And so, you know, how that might work in the classroom setting is kind of interesting. You know, if, if we take the Foucauldian point that you know, classrooms have always been sites of discipline, right? Um, part of one of the things that goes on is you know the internalization of certain modes of behavior and conduct and uh, and so on. You, you know, one is to kind of get the students to subjectively embrace that. The the other is to just make it impossible to behave differently, right? And one is a kind of more external form of control, and one is the more internalization. And I think environmentality pushes in that second direction. The option just isn't there. Um, you know, I, I don't know how that would work in the metaverse. You know, how do you pass a note in the metaverse? The code can stop you. <laughs> the code will see what you're doing, and you just you can't. You know, in a physical space, there's a certain ungovernableness of it. If the teacher can't see you and you're passing a note, it gets passed. I can't. Ha- the metaverse can't happen, right? I, or you know. It just depends on how you set up the the code, <laughs> but in a, in a way they're kind of trapped in a in a controlled environment that decides what affordances they have or not. So when it comes to the the future of education, I, I mean I, I suppose what you could imagine is a um, and it sounds quite dystopian to me, right? But a, a kind of hyper individualized form of of control. <laughs> In, in which like, the transfer of certain skills takes place. And, you know, I, I guess there's a part of me, I, again, I'm really interested in this, the kind of what the relationship is between education uh, as a social process that's a collective one that makes us understand that learning has kind of benefit externalities. <laughs> we learn together, that builds connections between us, and it shapes what it is that we're interested in learning and how we learn. 
But I, I, you know, I, I think all the technologies that I'm talking about really are biased in this direction of a kind of hyper individualized skills transfer. Actually, what you were just saying there brings us back to the the whole idea of the subject. I mean, Hertbiester talks about the subjectification component of education, you know, kind of getting people to realize that who they are as an individual, but also who they are as a collective and the fact that they are in a community. I mean, that's meant to be a big part of public education. Mm. But as you say, the individualization that's attached to technology pushes us in these kind of more dystopian, privatized, individualized way. I think just, just to pick up on what you're saying, what's really alarming, I think, is something we touched on earlier, which is the almost incomprehensible readiness of public education institutions to offload much of this onto commercial platforms. And the interest in these commercial platforms and the potential profitability of this, this type of a development, it, you know, it would be interesting to ask the question, what would a civic, collective, community-based form of uh, you know, automation in the classroom look like? I'm worried we're not even going to be able to ask that question because these automated technologies are costly. They rely on processing power and large data stores. And there are commercial companies that have already kind of developed the infrastructure to do that. And educational institutions have proven themselves really willing to just kind of pawn that off on those existing structures. I mean, you know, for practical reasons that we can understand, but the pedagogical reasons are much more fraught, I think. Absolutely. And so the, so the real danger is we won't even be able to ask that question of what, what would collective community-based automation look like? It just won't happen because we will have decided already we're a Google school or a Microsoft school or a meta school, and the platform will be in there, and the platform will be shaped by its commercial imperatives. They're, they're not public service imperatives. To take public education and put it in the hands of private corporations is something that I think is pathological. And we used to have a kind of resistance to that. Right? You know, we used to, there used to be that moment where we would see commercial incursions into um, public spaces as threats. We don't seem to, to, I mean, many of the people I talk to do, but as, as an institutional practice, it's so naturalized now. You know, we work in institutions that are um, already captured in some ways by these uh, large platforms. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of McDonald's running a school canteen is still kind of looked down upon by most people, but the idea of Google dictating what's taught, how it's taught, and, and when it's taught is not. Let's finish on a positive note. I mean, we're not going to reinvent. I'll a, try. <laughs> we're not going to try and reinvent a socialist education automation. But I was interested. You, you fleetingly hint in the book, in as in edu- terms of education, possibly having a role to play as a counterbalance. I mean, you're right. It's a form of kind of resistance to the automation of society. I think you're right. An alternative to dystopian automation requires a wholesale rethinking of our media and education systems. Admitting this fact can have a dampening effect on hopes for change, but denying it renders change impossible. So, I mean, can you expand on that a little bit? How might education systems be rethought to kind of foster a, a resistance or at least a reflection on, on automation? Yeah, I mean, both of us are educators in a way, so... Uh, we're we're kind of wedded to this notion uh, of the importance of education. I, I believe in that profoundly. And, it, you know, it's in a sense, it's excavating some of the things that have been the flip side of what we've been talking about, which is the fact that meaningful forms of education that build a sense of our uh, interdependence and our commitment to the structures and the practices that make society possible <laughs> I think those are the, so when I say remaking the education system, I'm always thinking about 
how it is that these are spaces where we can, in a sense, reveal what is suppressed by the commercial platforms. <laughs> and, and I think what's suppressed by those platforms is precisely the irreducible interdependence of the social. Uh, and so, you know, if you accept with me my premise that the commercial infrastructure for automation has been premised almost exclusively on a, on a kind of hypertrophied individualism, this is for you, it's custom tailored to you, it's your ads, your show, your programming, your news content, your education. Um, it's got a kind of you, you, you as an individual message which is in some sense a kind of reaction formation to mass society, right? Like mass society was, uh, you know, that great totalitarian mass marching in lockstep and now it's, you know, individual expression and freedom. What's suppressed, I think, by that hyper-entrophied individualism is the social processes that irreducibly make even the conception of individualism possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and what education can do is to point that out and say, but your very conception of what of individual freedom actually relies on a whole host of irreducibly social practices. And even these processes of hyper-individualism and customization and, and automation, as we know, relies irreducibly in the end on social decisions, right? This is the work that critical data study scholars have pointed to all the time, right? You know, it's automation is not somehow untethered from the social. The data sets that are entered into it are data that's collected that reflect, you know, society and how it works. If, if the data yields biased outcomes, those data sets that are you know, doing like linguistic translation that take, you know, languages that uh, have nouns that aren't gendered uh, and then translates them into a language that does will reflect the gender biases in the language. So, you know, a doctor will be translated as masculine and, and so on. There is no data that's not deeply embedded in history and society, and there are no decision processes about questions and priorities to set for algorithms that are not deeply embedded in the social. But automation does a work of laundering, right? It, it kind of invites you to forget the social uh, and to see the automated and the mechanical is, is somehow freed from that. And I think the education process is one of the things that are really important to me is to point out the irreducible sociality. So education is a place where we can kind of remind people and critically get them to reflect on technology, as you say, reflect upon the whole kind of sociality and the, the socio-technical nature of these platforms. That they're. We just have to hope that that message is the one that gets curated in our kind of personalised information feed when the automated technology is giving us our personalised bit of education. Um, it's a tortuous kind of... Uh, that would be the paradox. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. Matt, thanks ever so much for taking the time to discuss. I mean, these are all fascinating, deep, big ideas, but it's great just to have a chance to kind of scratch the surface. And yeah, and I just recommend everyone read the book and carry on the conversation. Thanks so much. Pleasure talking to you.